0: Welcome to the New Books Network. In the first two chapters of Luke's Gospel, characters acknowledge Jesus as Messiah, Son of God, and Lord. Such a high Christology, however, appears incongruous with the rest of the body of the Gospel, where human characters seem ignorant of Jesus' divinity, at least until his resurrection. Here to resolve a long-standing scholarly puzzle is Caleb Friedemann. We'll be talking about his recent monograph, The Revelation of the Messiah, the Christological Mystery of Luke 1-2, and its unveiling in Luke Acts. You're listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm your host, Michael Morales. Caleb Friedemann holds the David A. Case Chair of Theology and Ministry and is Associate Professor of New Testament at Ohio Christian University. Caleb, welcome to New Books and Biblical Studies. Thanks. It's great to be here. So, Caleb, let's begin by getting to know you. Tell us about yourself.
1: Yeah, so I grew up in a very Christian home. My dad was a seminary professor, and my mother was just a really godly woman who invested most of her life in educating me and my siblings. And that gave me some unique opportunities growing up. When I was in junior high and high school, I had the opportunity to take Latin, Greek, and Hebrew before graduating high school. And so when I went to Asbury University for undergraduate work, I majored in ancient languages, and then went on from there to Wesley Biblical Seminary, where I did an MA in biblical literature, and then did a PhD in biblical theology, New Testament at Wheaton College. So that's kind of the academic side of my life. But in addition to that, I also am ordained as an elder in the Church of the Nazarene, and had the opportunity to and teach at churches regularly, and I really enjoy that as well. And, yeah, I also do have a little bit of a life beyond the, the church and, and academic spheres. I'm an avid reader, enjoy reading the great books. I've been on a great books kick for the last few years. And then I'm also a musician. I sing the guitar. And-
0: so do you have a favorite among the great books?
1: Ooh, that's tough. I tell you what, uh, I really learned to love uh, Homer. Iliad and the Odyssey, also John Milton' Paradise Lost, is just uh, an amazing work. So th- those are a couple that have really stuck with me as I've I've gotten into that.
0: Nice. Well, let's turn now to your book, The Revelation of the Messiah. Your book addresses what you call a Christological conundrum in Luke one through two. Would you set up this challenge for us and give us a glimpse of some of the previous attempts at resolving this puzzle?
1: Yeah, for a lot of people who are kind of new to thinking about Luke one to two. What I'm flagging up as a conundrum might not really seem like it at at first glance, but it's interesting because when you look at these first two chapters of Luke's gospel, what we see is that there are characters in the story who call Jesus things like Messiah, Son of God, and Lord. And then Luke also presents Jesus, or presents John, as going before the Lord to prepare his way, which raises this question of whether Jesus might be that Lord is spoken of in the Old Testament that John's going before. And then Luke also connects Jesus to certain passages about Yahweh in the Old Testament as well. So there's this really heavy emphasis on Christology at the beginning. But what's fascinating is when you get to Luke 3, the characters in the story don't seem to be aware of any of those things that have been said about Jesus in those opening chapters, right? I mean, when the scene opens in Luke 3 you have John the Baptist doing his ministry and people are asking the question is John the Messiah and to someone who's just finished reading Luke 1 and 2 right before that you're thinking why don't why don't you get it we know that Jesus is the Messiah Jesus is the son of God and Jesus is a lord of some sort from from those opening chapters so why the disconnect between what Luke 1 and 2 on the one hand and then Luke 3 on the other. What's, what's really going on there? And there have been a number of attempts by scholars to explain exactly how all this fits together, and they're not all trying to answer the question in the same way. So I, I trace four models that people have used in the past for explaining the relationship between Luke 1 to 2 and the rest of Luke Acts from a Christological standpoint. The first one is what I call the resurrection retrojective. Raymond Brown is who's has a big book called Birth of the Messiah. This is the position that he takes in his work. And he basically starts with the premise that the Gospels developed backwards from the resurrection narratives. So the earliest material that we have in the Gospels, he would say, is the stories about Jesus' death and resurrection. And then gradually we built on material from that, which means actually while the birth narratives are the first thing that we read in the Gospels, they're actually the latest material to have come into existence. And so his basic hypothesis is that Luke is inheriting these traditions and then puts them all together, but there's been Christological development as time has been going on. So actually, there's, there's a legitimate disconnect between Luke 1-2 to and the rest of the Gospel. And that Luke basically just puts these traditions together and doesn't attempt to reconcile them. So you have a legitimate incongruity between these. So the reason that characters in Luke 3 don't know the things that have been talked about in Luke 1 and 2 is because they're coming from different layers of tradition. And Luke has not actually smoothed over those those differences. So that that's Brown's explanation, and he doesn't really take a big position on whether or not Luke presents Jesus as God. He has, he has a view on that, but that's not really central to his view. The second view is what I call non-divine to divine Christology. So Daryl Bach, for example, argues that Luke starts off by presenting Jesus as a, a merely human Messiah, and then by the end of, of Luke, and then definitely in Acts... Presents Jesus as the divine Lord of all, and Luther is taking you from this initial Christology and kind of giving you a sense of how the disciples or people who knew Jesus might have grown in their understanding of him across the gospel. So you start off with a non-divine view of Jesus, but then you end up with a the divine Jesus, and that actually looks intention that you would do that. Another view is what I call thoroughgoing divine Christology. And Calvin Rose is a good representative for this, where Luke is pre- presenting Jesus as divine Lord from start to finish. But that raises some questions because a lot of these early uses of Christological titles like Messiah, Son of God, and Lord are coming on the lips of characters in Luke 1 2 who don't personally seem to perceive Jesus as divine Lord, right? So when Elizabeth calls Mary the mother of my Lord, does she really acknowledge Jesus as being God in the flesh? It seems like not in the story. So what Roe ends up doing is prioritizing sort of Luke's intention for Christology over the intention of his characters. So that, that's how he achieves this kind of cons- this Christological consistency across the gospel. But then it's also hard to handle what's going on with the characters in the story. So that's the third model. And then the final model is what I call... Just thoroughgoing, non-divine Christology. So Jesus is not divine at the beginning, and Jesus is not divine at the end either. And Daniel Kirk is the the scholar that I use as an example of this view. So those are the the, the four views that are at least the major ones that are out there. But what's interesting is, Brown, with the resurrection retrojective view, is actually trying to solve a different problem than the other three do. So he's trying to figure out why this disconnect between Luke one to two and the rest of the Gospels. The other views really aren't providing an answer to that question, and I'm trying to sort out all of it <laughs> by introducing a fresh hypothesis as to how this
0: could fit together. Caleb, give us your basic thesis: how you approach the material in Luke one through two.
1: Yeah. So my basic thesis is that Luke presents these first chapters of his gospel, Luke one and two. As a Christological mystery. In other words, a mystery about Jesus's identity. Now, I'm using mystery there in a, in a very particular sense that goes back to Daniel. If you look at how Daniel uses the term mystery, he presents it as basically some sort of divine revelation, that, like, like a vision or a dream, for example, that then it requires further divine revelation to unveil it. So it's something that's like partially revealed, but then it needs to be revealed more to be fully understood. And that's why in the book of Daniel, in the first six chapters, you'll have all these kings who are having dreams and visions, and Daniel has to step in and interpret them. And then in the latter part of the book, you have Daniel who's receiving these visions, and actually some sort of heavenly guide has to step in and explain those to him. So to view Luke 1-2 to in that way would mean that Luke is presenting these chapters as some sort of divine revelation that then needs to be further unveiled as, somehow as we move through the story. One of the really fascinating things about Luke 1-2 to that I didn't realize when I started studying these chapters is that Luke presents his birth narrative in basically seven scenes. So if you look at, throughout Luke 1-2, to most scholars would agree there are seven scenes going on here. And what I find fascinating is that at the center of each of these scenes, we find at least one, sometimes more, uh, but usually at least one instance of divine revelation. So some sort of verbiage is being spoken by an angel or an inspired human. And I call these inspired speakers. So, for example, you start off with Zechariah, or start with Gabriel appearing to Zechariah, right, in the temple. And then Gabriel appears to Mary. And then Mary and Elizabeth each speak, I think, pathetically. And then you have Zechariah gets his own prophecy, right, after that. And you just go through the narrative. And over and over and over again, you have these angels or humans who are basically speaking on God's behalf. So that's the divine revelation, I think, that Luke is using the kind of parallels this divine revelation that we find in Daniel. So he's using this concept of mystery. But what that means is the things that we read in Luke 1 to 2— they would be presented, but they're veiled, in a sense. Yes, these are divine revelation, but they they need something further to unveil the true meaning. What I think that does is it creates the potential for a dual intentionality within the story when we're looking at humans who are speaking about Jesus. So if I I can go back to that example of Elizabeth. Mm -hmm. So when she calls mother, sorry, when she calls Mary, excuse me, the mother of my Lord, what I think is going on there is, in her own personal view of Jesus, she is thinking about him probably as some Messiah, perhaps, or, or at least a very important human, right? But not necessarily as God Himself. But if Elizabeth is a, if Elizabeth, excuse me, is an inspired speaker, then what that means is she is actually speaking as well on God's behalf and God's intention. In right? the Holy Spirit's intention for it were to make those substantially beyond what she herself perceives. So we can ha- you can have both of these intentions existing within the story. So it's not like there's, there's one thing that's going on in the story, and Luke has another thing that's going on outside the story, necessarily. It's both of these things are coexisting in the narrative. And, and, and that allows you to affirm both what the humans seem to mean when they're talking about Jesus in their humanness, and then also that there might be something more than that, but within the story itself.
0: So would you connect that to the end of the gospel where the understanding of the disciples is opened?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I think we kind of have to ask if this is a, a mystery, right? If all this is a mystery, then at what point do people finally come to understand who Jesus is? Where's this moment of unveiling, the stage two in in the mystery, Right. And, and I would say that that happened at the very end of the Gospel, when Jesus opens the disciples' mind to understand the Scriptures. And, and I think that makes a lot of sense, actually, out of Luke's Christology, because most of the time, when there are passages where it seems like Luke might be presenting Jesus as God, he's using Old Testament passages to do it. He's alluding to the Old Testament, or sometimes quoting the Old Testament, in some way, so Jesus opens the disciples' mind to understand the scriptures, and then I think the evidence that there's been an unveiling there is actually right after that, because when Jesus ascends, the disciples worship Jesus. The, the Greek verb there is proskuneo, and Luke is very particular about how he likes to use that verb. He, he only really uses it uh, in such ways that it makes really clear that he regards it as an action that's only appropriately directed toward the one true God. So so that would be the moment of unveiling for the disciples. But then the question is, uh, what about Mary, the one who received all this in this one too? What about her? And I think that actually we see that Luke includes her among the disciples in Acts. of Acts, she actually one of the very few named characters among the disciples. And I think that's because Luke is trying to clue you in that she, too, has experienced this, what we might call a, a hermeneutical transformation right? She's come to see Jesus as who he
0: really is in Luke's. In Luke's eyes. Yeah. Now you dedicate an entire chapter to the use of the book of Daniel in Luke one through two. Tell us about the gospel's use of Daniel. How does Daniel function in these narratives? What's the goal? Yeah,
1: this was a little bit of a surprise for me as well. When you think of Christmas, right? The <laughs> birth narratives, you don't typically think of Daniel as being intimately connected with it, with, with that. But We have Gabriel showing up in Luke 1. And Gabriel's biblical appearances are basically limited to Luke 1, where he shows up to both Zechariah and to Mary. And then you have two earlier occurrences in the Old Testament, in Daniel 8 and Daniel 9. That's it. So Gabriel, I think, is a really strong clue that Luke is interested in Daniel. But it's not just that Gabriel shows up. I actually trace out a lot of ways that he portrays when Gabriel shows up. He's alluding back to passages in Daniel 9 and Daniel 10. So Luke has a really strong interest, it seems, in in Daniel. Uh, One of the things that I go on to do, though, is to, I I think I make a a bit of a contribution in in arguing beyond what others have in the past, because there are other scholars who have seen some of these connections. I go a step further to argue that the sayings about Mary preserving all the words in her heart. So this would be Luke 2.19 and 2.51. The, those sayings are actually specifically allusions to Daniel 7.28, rather than just being some sort of general motif that's being used. So Luke is specifically reaching back to Daniel 7 for these sayings. And I think one of the reasons for that is the verbal parallels to are stronger between what Luke says and what Daniel says. But the other thing is that with all these earlier uses of Daniel and Luke 1, it makes a lot more sense for Luke to be alluding to Daniel as well, rather than just grabbing some sort of general apocalyptic motif or something like that. And what that then creates a possibility for is using Daniel to some degree, Daniel 7.28, to help explain these really enigmatic sayings about Mary, you know, Mary was preserving all these words and pondering them in her heart, right? What what do those kinds of things mean? And and I think Daniel can actually really help us with that because in Daniel, it seems like preservation in the heart is actually a middle stage between two other things. So at the beginning of Daniel 7, we find out that it says that Daniel had a dream and he wrote it down. So we know even at the beginning that this been recorded by Daniel. And then Daniel goes on to talk about how he had this dream, right? And it's the, the dream about the, the four beasts and then the Son of Man appearing. And then at the end of that, he says, And I preserved the word in my heart. So we have basically revelation of some sort, and then you have preservation in the heart, and then you have later communication. That's the implied narrative sequence or the story sequence that lies behind seven, So then what what you see, if Luke is doing that, well you have all this revelation, right, all all this inspired speech by angels and humans Mary then takes all that and preserves it in her heart, which is to say she preserves it in secret She's the one that knows about this There's a period where she's the only one that knows this and she's not broadcasting it to the world And then apparently it didn't stay in her heart alone because eventually it gets out of her heart so that Luke can actually communicate it on the page. So I think when when we see that it does a couple of things for us. One, we see that when Mary is preserving all the words, it's not just things; it's actually words, or in other in other words, divine revelation that she's delivering. So Mary's grabbing all the prior instances of inspired speech that she's privy to in the preceding narrative. And then she's actually keeping that for the future. Now, why is she keeping it for the future? I think it probably a couple things. One is for future understanding that she can actually get what's going on. She, it seems like she realizes she doesn't fully comprehend what's going on. That's why the pondering in Luke 2.19. And, and also in 2.51, right before that, we find out that Jesus has just had this saying about, didn't you, you know I needed to be in my father's house? And it says that they didn't understand what he meant by that. So Mary's hanging on to these things for pondering, right? To, to try to figure out what's going on. But also, I think for eventual communication. I think Luke's kind of giving a nod to Mary as being the, the source ultimately of where he got this information. But it's not just information, it's actually revelation. You know, and, and that's part of what Daniel does for you in this case. So that that's kind of the big picture with Daniel in Luke one to two. And what I think is really interesting about that is that when Luke is using Daniel, he's usually alluding to either Daniel 7, 28, like like I just talked about, or he's alluding to some passages in Daniel 9 and 10. But it's really interesting because he's he's alluding to what I would call framing passages in those stories. So rather than focusing on the, the real content or the message of Daniel 7, Daniel 9, and Daniel 10, he's actually grabbing things about the way that the the way that the divine revelation is given or unveiled. So like Gabriel showing up, for example, or what what the visionary does when Gabriel shows up, that kind of thing. And I think that's Luke's further clue to us that we need to interpret the inspired speech that's found in in Luke 1 and 2 in a Daniel kind of sense, right? In this Danielic sense of of mystery, where there's this initial revelation that that needs to be further unveiled. So where that all comes back to make a difference is it helps us to relate Luke 1 and 2 to Luke 3 and following. So we talked earlier about this retrojected resurrection hypothesis, right? So there's this Christological incongruity between Luke 1 to 2 on the one hand and Luke 3 and following on the other hand. Raymond Brown explains that as being basically differences in layers of tradition that can't reconcile or that didn't reconcile. My, my actual explanation would be that it's intended by Luke and that he's explained it by telling you that Mary was preserving all the words in her heart. Because if that's true, then Mary's taking all that stuff that was said about Jesus and she's keeping it secretly. And by the time we reach Luke 3, well, who's around that was privy to that, that revelation in Luke 1-2? I mean, you've got right, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Simeon and Anna, and maybe Joseph. And it seems like all of those people, I mean, the first four are very old, and as far as we know, Joseph never, never really shows up in the Gospels in person. So it seems like all those people are probably passed at this point. Mary is the only one who's still around, and she's preserving it in her heart. This is why everybody's ignorant of what was said about Jesus in Luke 1-2 when you step on the stage in Luke three, so I think it's actually a really artistic by Luke and he, he has a he has a narrative explanation for why it is that nobody knows Jesus as the Messiah and that's why he can actually hang on to the mark in secret right so there's a secrecy about Jesus' identity it takes in Luke it takes Peter until chapter 9 to declare you're the Messiah well, why is that? Well, because Peter doesn't know all the stuff that Mary does, right? Because she's preserved again.
0: It's been a fascinating talk, Caleb. Would you give us an update on your current work and research? What are you working on these days?
1: Yeah, you know, I've actually got a couple co-authored projects that'll be coming out later this year. I've done, I've been working on a book on the doctrine of good works with my dad, Matt Friedman, and. Tom McCall, he's a theologian at Asbury Theological Seminary. So we're basically presenting a positive Protestant doctrine of good works in, in that book. And then I, I've also got a copy book on the doctrine of holiness that, that'll be coming out later this year. The first one, the good works one, is with Baker Academic. And then this one on holiness will be with IVP Academic. And that's the, the latter book is with my friends Matt Ayers and Chris Bounds. So... Those two will be coming out later this year and then I'm actually working on another book on the gospel work narratives, but trying to deal with more historical questions regarding those stories as opposed to the kind of literary theological issues that I'm dealing with in this particular book.
0: That all sounds good. Caleb, thank you so much for being with us and all the best to you.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Michael, for the opportunity. Really appreciate it. And yeah, just excited to get to share this work.
0: Friends, this has been another episode in New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. See you next time.